This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to season one of The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, today we have Dr. Elizabeth Ticeberg, a leading figure in the value-based healthcare strategy movement. In her role as Executive Director of the Value Institute for Health and Care at Dell Medical School, she is an integral part of the faculty and leadership team to build value-based healthcare from the ground up at a top-tier research university. Dr. Ticeberg actually wrote the book on value-based healthcare in 2006 with Dr. Michael Porter called Redefining Healthcare, Creating Value-Based Competition on Results. Daniel, I think we had a really awesome conversation with Dr. Ticeberg, and it's truly an honor to have her on our podcast today. Definitely, Eric, a great privilege. I I couldn't be more uh, happy to have somebody like Dr. Ticeberg on our podcast. You know, she actually invented the term value-based healthcare. I mean, that's big. Signaling a change for decades before it was taken seriously in the industry. What a great opportunity our listeners have to hear truly insightful thinking from Dr. Ticeberg today. Well, let's go ahead and kick it over to Dr. Elizabeth Ticeberg as she joins us today in the Race to Value. Dr. Elizabeth Ticeberg, welcome to the Race to Value podcast. Thank you. Dr. Teisberg, I cannot even begin to tell you how you have influenced my life. When I began my career in healthcare administration years ago, I read Redefining Healthcare, the seminal book that you and Michael Porter released in 2006. You and Dr. Porter introduced the concept of value-based healthcare all those years ago, and that is when the true possibilities of what we could create in the American healthcare system became known to me. At that time, I remember this idea of health value being ridiculed as utopian and impractical. I was starting my career at that point, and I was in a role where I really saw the dark underbelly of fee-for-service excess, which as a leader made me complicit in profiteering and the shocking level of patient victimization. I was about to quit healthcare altogether because of some of these early experiences in the industry, and then I read your book. 
and your thought leadership and redefining healthcare stirred within me a healthy level of discontent that ultimately became a prelude to my journey in value-based healthcare. A few years ago, I asked you to autograph my copy of that book, and it was the closest I've ever been to being starstruck. Dr. Ticeberg, you are a true hero to me, and I am honored to have you as a guest on Race to Value. I'm really humbled by that introduction. I came into this as a parent and a child of an elder person who needed a lot of care. I deeply admire and care about the clinicians who helped me care for the loved ones in my life, but they work in a system that makes it hard for them to accomplish everything they wanted to. That needs to change. I couldn't agree more, Dr. Tykesberg, and I can't wait to have this conversation with you today. So let's go ahead and start and explore this concept of value-based healthcare. I thought maybe a great way to begin the conversation would be to talk about the definition of value-based healthcare. You and Dr. Porter defined value in healthcare as the measured improvement in a patient's health outcomes for the cost of achieving that improvement. The industry has adopted that definition, but we seemingly struggle with how to operationalize it. We often conflate value-based healthcare entirely with operational programs that focused on cost reduction, quality improvement, or patient satisfaction. Those efforts, while important, are not the same as value, which focuses primarily on improving patient health outcomes. Although the industry has finally accepted your definition of value into the healthcare lexicon, the value-based healthcare movement continues to move at a glacial pace in juxtaposition with the moral and economic imperative to make it happen. In a sector that's so important with quality of life, in dignity, in death at stake, how can we have innovation in the competitive dynamic in healthcare be slower and so backwards relative to other sectors of the economy? In the 15 years since you wrote Redefining Healthcare, one would have expected to see innovation in healthcare service delivery to have made much more progress. I thought you could provide perspective on where we are with value-based healthcare in relation to the diffusion of innovation theory. Will the COVID-19 pandemic crisis be the opportunity we need to bring together the insights and knowledge that we have gathered over the years to finally bring about vital, lasting progress in reforming our nation's healthcare system? Also, I just wanted to ask you, can you explain the difference between healthcare, which is one word, versus health care, two words? It seems like there's, there's an important distinction to be made as we look to reform our nation's health system. As one word, healthcare means treatment. And you don't really want more of that. You really want more health. And you want the care that you need to get there. And you want more caring, more empathy. So healthcare as two words is really the goal. You really want better health and more caring, but you don't really want more treatment. If that doesn't make sense to you instantly, Consider an extra colonoscopy, even if it's free, you don't want it. In fact, you know, nobody wants to spend their vacation week in a hospital. So we want to think in terms of the goal. We want to think in terms of wanting more health, better outcomes, not wanting more treatment. There were famous studies 
that were still widely quoted at the time that we wrote Redefining Healthcare that talked about what was viewed as a reality that people always want more healthcare. And it's simply not true. And if you read those studies, the actual content of what they did in the studies, the people in the studies were not enabled to distinguish between choosing more treatment and more health. And so when the only path to better health is more treatment, they did choose that. Your first question is about why healthcare seems to persistently drive in a direction that isn't the purpose of healthcare. The purpose of healthcare is to improve the health outcomes for the people we serve. And when all we measure is the profits we make or the spending that happens, then we pull the attention away from how do we improve the health and the health outcomes of the people we serve. Healthcare needs to get aligned with its purpose in order for the innovation journey and you know, the diffusion and adoption of innovation to work. So it does feel surprising in some ways that healthcare doesn't transform faster. One would expect the innovation dynamic in something this important to get a lot of attention. And it's complicated. When you think about the theory of diffusion and adoption, it's about technologies and standards and products. The kind of change that we're looking for, this kind of transformation, requires a braid. It's a braid of change in strategy, in culture, and in measurement. And all three of those things need to be attended to for the transformation to occur and to stick. Inertia is an incredibly powerful force, particularly when it's anchored by a lot of money. And so in order to pull out of that, there need to be changes in strategy, changes in culture, changes in measurement, and they have to be woven together. We now offer masters in healthcare transformation from the Value Institute for Health and Care, where we work through eight different phases of transformation that need to occur and how this transformation is braided by strategy, culture, and measurement in each of these eight steps. And it's not that it's you know, some complex physics equation. It's that there are people involved and aspirations involved. And so it's a whole change of both the mindsets and the frameworks that you're using to make the change stick. Will COVID shake us out of that inertia? I hope so. It's very clear now that the health disparities in this country have to be addressed. And it's clear that we're way too focused on acute care when we can and should be thinking about earlier care that helps people get and stay healthy. We've also seen in the response to COVID, lots of groups doing much faster innovation than they were doing before. I was talking to a doctor from major hospital on the East Coast who pointed out that 
they started using cameras in the rooms that they could buy at Best Buy so that the nurse, without going into the room of the COVID patient, could talk to them, could have a conversation. And it was so effective in improving the relationship and the connection between the nurse and the patient in a safe way that they were sending people out to grab more cameras and just bring them back and set them up. And he said, you know, it used to be that if somebody had an idea for that sort of improvement, there would be a six month approval process that might or might not let it happen. And now the hospital approved it in a matter of a couple of days and arranged a bulk, a bulk order of cameras in less time than it would have taken to start the approval process pre-COVID. So we're certainly seeing that we can improve faster than we did in the past. And we're surely seeing that the delivery of unnecessary care is preventing us from using our resources for things that are desperately needed. And so perhaps this will give us an inflection point that we can use to drive more value for patients, better outcomes for the people we serve. Dr. Teisberg, I want to explore further the better outcomes that's a driving premise behind the value-based healthcare movement. And we know there's been considerable research in organizations that have achieved better outcomes while lowering costs. I'd like to begin with exploring the premise of improving the outcomes through clinically integrated care. And you advocate for care delivery transformation where value can be created in addressing particular medical conditions, such as the, you know, the 5% of population that drive 50% of the costs. And you focus on the idea of developing teams and deep expertise where care is delivered within integrated practice units or IPUs that are organized around the patient and the patient's needs. Can you provide our listeners with a brief overview of IPUs, share some of your evidence-based research on how clinically integrated care leads to improvement in outcomes, what needs to take place for an organization to commit to the IPU concept? And in this day and age, does it really make sense for health systems to be delivering everything to everyone? So the goal is to improve the health outcomes of the people you serve. As an aside, that probably will also help to address burnout because it returns healthcare you know, to its purpose. But the first step is to be clear about that, that our purpose is serving patients and serving community members who, if well-served, then don't need to become patients in the acute sense. So thinking about this kind of transformation is really about raising aspirations. And when you do that, you're looking for for gaps, for places where the outcomes that you have now are not consistently good for your patients, or where there are people who aren't showing up for care, who would clearly benefit by earlier care than waiting until they're in a situation where they need the emergency room, they need some you know, acute way of addressing a really serious problem. So you're looking for gaps. And facts are friendly. You want to be honest and clear about where those gaps exist, where outcomes aren't as good as they should be. Those are the places where you want to direct your attention to creating a new integrated practice unit. Places where the current care really isn't good enough. 
when you think about an integrated practice unit, what you're thinking about is what would be a solution to problems that now aren't solved well. An integrated practice unit involves an interdisciplinary team that works together to provide a better solution. In order to create that, you start by looking to the patients or to the family or the community members and figure out what's getting in the way of them achieving better health. What are the unarticulated needs or the unserved needs, but they're often unarticulated needs. What would it mean to create a solution for those that addresses those needs for those people? And so then you can put together a team that may include an interdisciplinary medical team, but may also include some aspects that aren't traditionally viewed as medical in order to make sure that people can get the care they need, follow the instructions, make the changes that they need to make in order to be able to really succeed with their medical team. Most things don't happen just in the clinic or in the hospital. They unfold over 365 days a year. And so once you understand those needs and think about what would it mean to actually develop a solution to them, you can pull together the team that's necessary to deliver that solution. And the way we work with organizations on this is to help them figure out how to create human-centered solutions that address the actual needs of the people you're serving, and then deliver them in relationship-centered ways. I'll give you an example that uh, I'm super proud of right now that's unfolding at Del Med, Del Medical School in Austin, Texas. Dr. Charles Frazier and Dr. Carlos Mary have brought a team of people and then gathered a team of people at Dell Children's Hospital in Austin, Texas to improve the care for children born with congenital heart anomalies. They have, in a very short period of time, dramatically changed the survival rate for children born with congenital heart anomalies and changed the complexity of situation that can be expertly treated in Austin. So the overall results are better. The complexity of situations that can be handled close to home are better. And they are expanding the care that they give to be focused on joyful childhood in addition to being focused on alive off the operating table. The measured outcomes in the Society for Thoracic Surgeons database are really impressive. The STS used to use a star rating and in the star rating averages over three years. In their first year, it was so good that it changed the star rating, which depends on a three-year average. So they've made a phenomenal change and it enables people to get care in Austin, which means it enables people with lower resources who couldn't afford to move their family to Houston for a period of time to get expert care. It's addressing equity as well as addressing the outcomes locally. 
With the concept of measuring and reporting outcomes within an IPU, I wanted to explore that more with you with regard to patient reported outcomes. And it seems like having patient reported outcomes as a core component of building these interdisciplinary care teams within an IPU is really critical. Knowing outcomes, these teams can develop insight on what approaches work best and for which patients. Ideally, clinicians would track and analyze a patient's current status and trends to guide clinical decisions, share clinical decision-making and process improvement. And I know you've been an advocate of patient-reported outcomes or PROs that can be measured during and after care, thereby linking measurement to the fundamental reasons for seeking healthcare rather than measuring proxies for quality, which we're all familiar with in value-based care these days. And I feel like the big challenge we have in the industry right now is that it relies too much on standardized measures that are often process-oriented and not entirely focused on what's important to the patient. If you look at any other industry, value is defined by the customer, not the supplier. That comes down to that Peter Drucker principle about what gets measured gets managed. And if you want to improve outcomes, we have to figure out how to more effectively measure them. So I wanted to ask you, where do you think we will go when it comes to measuring outcomes from the patient's perspective using patient reported outcome measures? Can you explain what you have proposed in focusing on the essential measures of healthcare quality that are priorities to patients and their quality of life and dignity of death? capability, comfort, and calm, which is the framework that you've created. And also, can you inform our listeners, how have patient-reported outcomes been used at Dell Medical School within some of the IPUs that you've currently developed? Yes. When we talk about value, we mean value for patients. That is the idea of value. And you're right. You'll hear people saying, value for whom? What about value to the health plan? The purpose of healthcare is not to enable health plans. The purpose of healthcare is to help patients and families live well, to be healthier, quality of life, dignity of death. So it is about value for patients. And yes, when we measure outcomes, we are thinking about outcomes during care as well as outcomes of care. Again, particularly in a world with so much chronic disease, that's really important. Also think about end of life. It's the outcomes during care that really matter. In work that I did with Scott Wallace over a period of almost a decade, we did a lot of work with patients to understand the outcomes that really matter to them. And um, in a huge variety of situations, in children with asthma and their parents and their families, to frail elders with multiple chronic conditions, to patients and families dealing with diabetes, hypertension, neuropathy, which occur together, not as separate things, or people who had early stage breast cancer, which is different than late stage breast cancer. And in all of this work, over and over again, we realized that patients talked about three types of outcomes that were critical to them capability, comfort, and calm. Capability is what doctors call functional outcomes. It means it's can you do the things that allow you to be you. 
Comfort is reduction in suffering. It could be physical pain, reduction of physical pain or mental anguish, anxiety, depression, but improvement in comfort. And then calm is about whether we deliver care in ways that makes your life easier or as too often happens, is care delivered in ways that increase the chaos and mayhem that one experiences with a medical issue. And so in a sense, the calm measure is a completely different take on patient experience. Rather than being about hospitality, it's about the design and delivery of the healthcare services to support people's ongoing lives. We do look to measures of capability, comfort, and calm during care as well as the result of care and use those to enable feedback to the clinical team, which is huge, and to tie the healthcare to patients' goals. You may have someone who has become a grandfather and is looking forward to teaching his grandsons to hunt. And his goals sound like that. And he has diabetes and is concerned about the use of his feet and his eyesight. So it's easy to connect his personal goals to a few meaningful measures of capability, two in this case that would be measures that many people with diabetes would be concerned about, use of their feet and not losing their eyesight. And by measuring those things, you can both engage the patient more deeply and help the medical, the clinical team to understand their success or lack of success in helping this patient and other patients. We are using this approach at UT Health Austin, which are the clinical services with Dell Medical School. And we are in the process of finalizing a set of measures and testing out a set of measures that are in the categories of capability, comfort, and calm. And this is kind of fun. In addition to using them to give feedback to the clinical team and to give voice to the patients in giving feedback to the clinical team, We've also developed a set of measures of capability, comfort, and calm for the clinical team to keep track of their experience so that we can support the professional experience of the team and make sure that we don't run into the issues of burnout or moral injury that are happening so many places. It's not that healthcare doesn't measure. Healthcare is drowning in measures. And as you said, they tend to be measures of process or various clinical indicators. Those things are important for clinical delivery teams to understand in-house. You do want to understand the processes by which you achieve outcomes. But what needs to be the goal is to improve the outcomes. And what needs to be reported externally is a relatively small set of important outcomes, outcomes that matter to patients and families. And we need to move to that. 
Change is hard. People are often afraid to measure their outcomes. We need to start by re actually rewarding people just for participating in outcome measurement, not for achieving certain levels, and support people to together drive improvement in those outcomes. And then fairly quickly, but not immediately, move to the public reporting of those outcomes. We work with lots of groups that are using the basic idea of capability, comfort, and calm to restructure what they're doing. And they find that there are many things they're measuring now that they thought they were required to measure, and they're not part of the requirements. They're the buildup of measurements that have come from the required measures as organizations try to measure something that will give them an indicator of the things they're required to report. So most organizations are measuring many things they're not required to measure in service of required process measurements. So if we move to a small set of outcome measurements, give people experience with measuring those outcomes, then start reporting the outcomes, we can lighten the load of what outcome measurement is required. We can still keep the important understanding of processes within the clinical teams and simplify the process dramatically, but it will require an evolution and it requires the courage to stand up and say, I am here to help patients achieve outcomes and I'm measuring that. Because yes, as Drucker said, you can't manage what you don't measure. And if you're here to improve the outcomes of the patients you serve, then you need to measure that. Dr. Teisberg, you hinted at this, but let's call it out explicitly. You've been vocal for years about how we need to align payments with outcomes to be able to redefine healthcare delivery. Payment models must have a balanced alignment with authority and responsibility so that the system's held accountable for what it can actually influence. So an example I want to reference is the Musculoskeletal Institute at Dell Medical School, led by doctors Carl Koenig and Kevin Bosick, which has been pursuing bundled payments and utilizing patient-reported outcomes. The Musculoskeletal Institute is really a leading example in the country about how to create a value-based healthcare IPU essentially national standard. And as I understand, you have an immersion program there for clinicians and executives. And I think our listeners would be interested in hearing about how that institute's been able to successfully implement bundled payments to fulfill the promise of delivering greater value to patients by shifting toward condition level rather than procedure level care. ACLC co-founder Mark McClellan wrote an article last year with Dr. Bozik about how this IPU was an illustrative example of how to reform care and payment for degenerative joint disease. The results honestly have been impressive. Double-digit improvement in functional status of patients at the first follow-up visit, a decrease of more than 25% in the utilization of elective surgical procedures among the population receiving care. Can you walk us through how bundled payments allowed for the flexibility to shift resources to support the IPU care model? and how this payment methodology better aligns with the measurement of outcomes that matter to patients. How have you seen bundled payments enable that kind of innovation within an IPU? You're right. The musculoskeletal team at Delmed and UT Health Austin 
really has achieved remarkable results, as you say. And the payment mechanism that they're using to support that is a condition-based bundle rather than a procedure-based bundle. So most of what Medicare is using now is procedure-based bundles. And procedure-based bundles are basically a broader DRG. So they reduce some of the DRG problems, but they don't actually change enough. It, it pretty much is a broader DRG. A condition-based bundle is different because it then applies to anyone who comes in with this extreme joint pain. And the team can work with the patient and the bundle applies for all of the patients, whether they get surgery or not. So there's several things about that that are super helpful. The first one is that patients can first try a physical therapy approach, a weight loss approach, help with depression approach. Carl Koenig likes to say that knee surgery is a horrible treatment for depression. But knees hurt more if you're depressed. And so sometimes you can help someone get to a new spot without knee surgery. But there's an awful lot of unnecessary knee surgery that goes on in the country. So yeah, they work with patients too, so the patients can choose which approach to go. And many people prefer to try a less invasive approach first. The bundle is set up presuming that most patients will not need surgery. There is a payment that covers costs if the patient gets surgery, but there's not extra profit by doing surgery. You just don't lose money by doing surgery. And the profit comes from helping people who have knee pain or hip pain. They measure results for all of the patients, not just the patients who get surgery, which is more usual to just measure for people who get surgery. And so they're showing the improvement, the reduction of pain, the improvement in function or capability. And the COM measure they're, they're using initially is a general quality of life measure. So they check to see for all patients, not just the surgical patients, if they're actually getting help, actually getting better outcomes. What enables this change is the commitment of the team to wanting to deliver care this way. It's a commitment of the physicians to being willing to work directly with the social workers and the physical therapists and the chiropractors to have an excellent interdisciplinary team. Bundled payments, condition-based bundled payments, which are the kind of bundled payment we talked about in Redefining Healthcare, condition-based bundled payments are supportive because they give the clinical team the discretion to work with the patients and to adjust the care rather than having the care administratively chosen by payers or other administrators. So the way in which this aligns is by giving the clinical leaders discretion as how they get to great outcomes and having them measure outcomes during care and as a result of care so that they are committed to achieving good outcomes. Payment change doesn't need to precede change in care delivery. It can go either way. And often you need the, to demonstrate change in care delivery 
for the payers to be willing to move to new payment models. There is huge investment in computer systems and company cultures and the way things are done now around fee-for-service payment. So it's hard to get payers to be willing to implement a different way of doing things, even when it saves money in that particular instance, because it requires them to run their business differently. So demonstrating that you can get better outcomes is important because then you have what you referred to earlier as, and it is the moral imperative. Why would we treat people in ways that don't get as good results when we know how to get better results? And we have for decades documented huge unwarranted variation in care and outcomes, not just in this country, but all over the world. So we need to be measuring outcomes to create the imperative for people to move to better care delivery models. And then we can give those clinical teams bundled payment so that they can choose how to structure the care and what to do to get the best possible results and to do that efficiently. Well, Dr. Teisberg, it certainly seems that Dell Medical School at the University of Texas at Austin and the Value Institute for Health and Care has become a clear beacon for value-based healthcare and a pathway to excellence for the rest of the country. But I have to ask you, what does this mean on an international level? Are there lessons that we can learn from other countries? And I, I just think about the situation that we're in in our country currently. In 2019, the United States spent about $11,000 per person on healthcare, the highest healthcare cost per capita across the OECD. For comparison, Switzerland was the second highest spending country with about $7,700 in healthcare expenses per capita, while the average for the wealthy OECD countries, excluding the United States, was about $5,500. And I remember seeing once the World Health Organization, and it had all the countries and the United States was number 37, right between Slovenia and Costa Rica. And it seems like we can do a lot better. And I wanted to ask you about applying concepts of value-based healthcare from other countries. And Dell Medical School certainly seems like a laboratory to do that. And around the world, value-based care delivery is gaining traction, such as the New Zealand Ministry of Health and King's Health Partners in the UK, I've also read about how Santion, a Dutch cooperative association of seven teaching hospitals in the Netherlands, have been collaborating on research to improve health outcomes and were able to reduce unnecessary inpatient stays uh, over 15 months by 30%. And their rate of reoperation due to complications in breast cancer patients was reduced by 74% just by applying value-based healthcare concepts. And Dr. Teichsberg, I was once a student at the one of the executive education sessions that was hosted by the Value Institute for Health and Care. And I remember learning about the Martini Clinic, a specialist prostate cancer clinic in Germany that systematically measures the quality of care using outcomes that are most relevant to patients. Uh, another great example uh, on an international level of value-based healthcare. So my question for you is, can you provide perspective on how you have applied value-based healthcare learnings from other countries to inform your own thinking of how we can reform our system? Also, 
Is the Value Institute for Health and Care considering any international collaborations at this point? We do a lot of international work uh, at the Value Institute for Health and Care. We also have Christina Uckerman on our faculty, who was the former CEO of the International Consortium for Health Outcome Measurement, ICHOM. We've done a lot of work with partners in uh, Australia and New Zealand and Canada, as well as Europe. We have people in our executive education classes and our master's class from Africa, Europe, the UK, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, Brazil. And we have a webinar later this week on this topic of partnerships to make healthcare work with leaders from Roche in Denmark and from Santian, which you just mentioned, talking about using partnerships to help restructure how healthcare gets delivered and improve value. We use a lot of international examples in our work. The, the thing is that high value healthcare is easiest to implement if you already have universal coverage in place. So our work is easiest when we're working in countries that already have universal coverage. There's certain kinds of cost shifting and cost avoidance are wildly reduced by having universal coverage. So we use examples from all over. One of the examples we've been using is care for people who've been in car accidents in Victoria, Australia. And what's really interesting about that is that they've restructured payment so that the insurance for someone who is in a car accident or is hit by a car, anything that involves a vehicular accident, the insurance is then for anything related to the road trauma goes for the rest of their life under a particular payer. So it is longitudinally consistent over time in one payer for anything related to the road trauma. And what that means is you don't have the dynamic of the payer wanting to quickly get the patient out of the hospital, even if that means they'll spend longer time in, in the nursing home. It's in the payer's interest as well as the patient's interest to figure out the whole cycle of care so that you get the best overall results for the patient. It is inherently less expensive to live in better health and with less disability. So both the payer and the patient are seeking the best possible full cycle care. And the payment is structured that way, which is a different sort of partial capitation than we often see, but very powerful for aligning incentives. As you say, another example that we often use is Santian and its consortium of seven teaching hospitals. The seven teaching hospitals are in different regions of the country. Healthcare is usually delivered locally, so they aren't really in competition with each other, but they have been able to enable tremendous learning for each other and have now really impressive results in, in 16 conditions that they're working in. As you point out, the Martini Clinic in Hamburg, Germany has really impressive results. They measure outcomes very, very carefully every single day. And they measure not just you know, life and death after surgery, they measure functional outcomes. 
So they look at depression, they look at continence, they look at potency, and have been able to figure out how do you help someone live well and not live with a lot of disability or incontinence. The whole conversation about what is appropriate care and what is over-treatment in prostate cancer shifts when people who have surgical treatment for prostate cancer don't suffer disability rewards. And they have remarkably good outcomes, remarkably better than the rest of the country and remarkably better than other places that measure. Unfortunately, most places that tell you their results are as good as the Martini Clinic, if you say, that's fabulous, please share them with us. We'll be happy to teach about the outcomes that you are achieving. They then say, well, we don't actually measure them. We just know we're good. You need places that really measure. We've worked with Dental Health Services of Victoria, which has been working to ensure good dental health outcomes for underserved populations in Victoria, traditionally underserved populations in Victoria, and gained a lot of learnings from them in that care. I could go on and on with examples. One of my favorites is an inpatient psychiatric hospital that at first thought that because they were psychiatric care, this value-based care stuff didn't apply to them. And their chief medical officer and CEO were talking. And at one point, the CEO said, wait a second, if we're not improving outcomes for the people we serve, then what is the function of an inpatient psychiatric hospital? It's a good question. It's a scary answer if you think about it that way. And so they have redirected their goals to improving outcomes for patients so they can get their normal life back. They can get back to families, back to jobs, back to the capabilities that matter to them in living their normal lives. And as a result, they've restructured their care into teams. They've changed what they measure. They are undergoing a dramatic turnaround in their, in their services. So there are examples from all over the world. Of course, a really well-known example is the Aravind Eye Clinic in India with its mission to end needless blindness. And in serving people who can't pay, have in a very focused way developed a tremendous amount of expertise and now are the destination for eye surgery in India, serving the people who can pay for anywhere they would choose to go. But they've developed the, the learning and the efficiency to be able to deliver extremely high value care. So there are, again, are a host of, of learnings from that that we use. One of the tricks for developing high value healthcare is to not reinvent wheels when the wheels are rolling well, but to look at other places, the lessons, the insights, the frameworks that work in other locations or work in other conditions or for other patient segments and say, how can I use this insight in what I'm doing? There's a catalog essentially of those insights and we've 
built them into frameworks, which is what we then use to teach implementing high value care. All of our work at the Value Institute for Health and Care is around how to implement high value care. So we're very practical in what we teach. We try to send people back with inspiration, but also steps within their stride for things you can do in the direction of high value care so that people feel enabled rather than overwhelmed. And we have a now a broad array of those executive education experiences, like the one that you attended, but on a variety of topics. You know, how do you create teams that rock? And how do you scale pilots? And how do you get to those insights about unarticulated needs or unmet needs for patients? Or how do you go from that articulation to solutions that your team can then implement? And what does it mean to develop relationship-centered care? And why do not-for-profits in healthcare need strategy? And then how do you put strategy into action? And as I said, how do you weave that braid that puts strategy, culture, and measurement together? And so we're doing those kinds of programs that anybody can sign up for if they want to, but we'll also, we're also customizing those types of experiences for particular groups. And then the other thing we do is support clinical change for specific teams. Um, so we're doing a lot of that within UT Health Austin, some of which I've mentioned. We're also working with the congenital heart team, Dell Children's, but we have a variety of those kinds of projects as well. Some of them in the US, many of them abroad. Dr. Teisberg, I keep hearing the, the term, and it's a consistent theme in all of our conversations with people around value-based healthcare, and you call it relationship-centered care. I want to explore this concept of, of relationship-centered care and the importance of the, the patient experience when interfacing with the healthcare system. And, you know, most organizations think of patient experience as strictly within terms of interactions that patients have with the, with the healthcare system, including you know, care from their health plans, from doctors, nurses, staff, physician practices, and other healthcare facilities. And what I love about Dell Medical's approach is that it also considers how peer insights can factor into the experience. More specifically, you're con actually convening experience groups and asking patients with similar conditions to share stories with each other about what their everyday lives are like. And the idea behind these experience groups, if I understand right, is to elicit insights about illnesses and conditions like obesity, type 2 diabetes, maybe breast cancer, uh, with, with the goal of understanding and addressing any unmet needs that may be holding back these patient populations. Can you expound upon this experience group concept for our listeners and share perhaps some anecdotal patient testimonials on how these groups transform their recovery and convalescence? The experience group methodology came out of work that Scott Wallace and I did. Scott Wallace is the co-director of the Value Institute for Health and Care. And we now, through the Value Institute, do a lot of this work. It came from gathering a group of people who share the health experience of living with some particular set of circumstances, as you explained. And then we talk with them about that experience, asking them about 
what's a good day, what's a bad day, what do you hope for, what do you fear? They're more general questions and get them talking to each other and we listen. And they talk about things that they don't talk to their clinical team about or don't talk to their doctor about because they're grateful and they don't want to waste the clinical team's time. It's not that they don't like or trust their their clinicians. It's that patients often don't want to waste the doctor's time or they're not getting asked about something in a particular way and they don't think to say it. But they'll often bring up things that haven't been discussed. That's why I refer to it as unarticulated needs. Best way to explain it to you is with an example. So several years ago, we were working with a group of women who had had breast cancer. And as we were asking them about good days and bad days, it came out that the outcome that was most concerning to most of them after they had figured out that they were going to live was chemo brain. It was cognitive impairment. And the teams that we had worked with to that point in breast cancer, none of them were measuring that outcome. They weren't measuring cognitive impairment for women who'd had chemotherapy. But this was the huge fear of these patients. You can measure it. You can counsel patients on things that may help to reduce those side effects. But it wasn't really on the radar screen. And so these conversations brought it up as a major issue. One other thing we discovered in one of the early experience group sessions was that patients with type 2 diabetes never brought up kidney failure. None of them. After we talked to dozens of patients in groups, and it wasn't that it's not important. It is very important, but it's not what they experience day to day. So as we talked with their doctors, we said, if you want to engage them, talk about neuropathy, talk about, your, talk about their feet, talk about erectile dysfunction, or talk about eyesight. Talk about the things that they're experiencing day to day that get them really motivated to improve their health. Don't start with, you might eventually end up on dialysis because it's not the first concern that gets them motivated. So we've been using the experience group methodology to understand needs and unmet needs and to expand from narrowly clinical definitions to broader definitions of what needs to be included in a solution and so that we have the patient's voice in how to improve care. Thank you, Dr. Ticeberg. Really appreciate you sharing that concept of experience groups. I wanted to shift our conversation to value-based healthcare in medical education. I'm sure you would agree that educating and reskilling the workforce will be central in this movement towards value-based healthcare. And here at the ACLC, we collaborate with the industry through dialogue, ideation, and action that ultimately results in workforce development. We're doing our part to integrate value-based healthcare competencies into curriculum that we're developing in partnership with Western Governors University, our parent organization. And as you can tell from our conversation today, I'm a big fan of Dell Medical School and the Value Institute for Health and Care because you share the same passion for value-based healthcare collaboration and education. 
So with Dell Medical School being the first medical school created at a research tier one university in nearly 50 years, you have a unique opportunity to reimagine healthcare and rethink everything when it comes to medical education. Can you speak to how Dell Medical School is integrating value-based healthcare into its curriculum? And do you think other medical schools across the country will follow its lead? Thank you. I think it's super important that we bring the idea of value, the idea of outcome measurement, the idea that ethics require us to measure and improve outcomes, that we bring all of that into medical education, and that we present healthcare as relationship-centered care, that we think about the team dynamics and supporting each other and the patient as part of that team. At Delmed, the biggest thing we've done to pull the notion of high value into the undergraduate medical education experience is by offering the opportunity, if students want it, to have some of the medical students in the Masters of Healthcare Transformation, which is the new master's degree that we have created. That program is expressly designed to be about how to implement high-value healthcare. And every course in the program is built from the ground up. It is a new topic that is something that you need to implement high-value healthcare. So it is really a deep dive. It is mostly mid-career professionals, but we give the opportunity for some medical students to be in that program. So they get a phenomenal experience of learning with department chairs and CEOs of federally qualified health plans and others, you know, the perfusionists from Chuck Frazier and Carlos Mary's congenital heart team, they get to learn with this extraordinary group of people and get a really deep dive into what does it take to implement high value healthcare. The other thing that they get, that our medical students get, that I think is huge, is because we have stood up some integrated practice units, as they're doing their clerkships, they get to work on those teams. And they can see the difference between working on those teams and the other groups that they work with as they rotate through various clerkships. So that gives them a notion of how different it feels in practice to be in Carl Koenig's morning huddle and have the team figuring out together what's the best care for this patient and how are we doing and what do we need to improve on a day-to-day -day basis. We also have in the program a number of things that are focused on waste reduction that are things that more medical schools have already picked up and are picking up. Waste reduction is a good thing, and it's more important to make sure that the services that we offer achieve great outcomes. If we're putting our energy into reducing waste in things that aren't achieving great outcomes or that aren't serving all of the people who should be served for those outcomes, then we need to make the transformation to the right goal to improving outcomes first and try to make that transformation efficient, but then drive efficiency in those new solutions 
And that's going to give us more transformation than just trying to take waste out of things that aren't working very well today. So I would like to see the medical community adopting programs like this new master's in healthcare transformation so that they're learning how to transform healthcare and how to make big meaningful changes in the way that system works. I want to talk with you a little bit about an extension of the innovation that began with Dell Medical School, which will be the creation of an emerging innovation district and potentially a national hub for transformation in Austin. As visioned, this new innovation district will be a space to create, refine, and validate disruptive ideas for improving health locally, but with a potential for national impact. Dell Medical School could eventually have a $2 billion annual local economic impact through this innovation and through the innovation and commercialization of research. But the value-based healthcare solutions that are incubated in this larger innovation district will have wide-reaching national, if not international, impact in improving the care outcomes of millions. Can you provide us with some thoughts on how you think this innovation district with Dell Medical School and the Value Institute at the center of the value-based healthcare ecosystem become a force multiplier for health value and innovation in years to come? So thanks, that's a great question. And it's a wonderful thought about the potential that these organizations can infuse into Austin and, and Travis County and the health of people living there. We have hit a bit of a speed bump with COVID and the economic challenges that every community is facing. The promise of this transformation and the innovation district will be really improved, really uh, accelerated by if employers lean in to catalyze change. And that's, this is true not only in Austin, but other places as well. Employers could think about themselves not just as payers in healthcare, but as catalysts of transformation and look for services that deliver far better outcomes and look for ways to help employees with diabetes or back pain or asthma or kids with asthma and work to support clinical transformation in those areas so that their employees and others in the community can get services that are designed as solutions, not just designed as access to appointments. So that dynamic will be true in Austin as well. You know, we have a, a tremendous tech hub in Austin that can help to implement that, uh, as well as you know, Whole Foods and HEB, which pay a lot of attention to the well-being of, of their employees. We hope that as we recover from COVID and as the economy comes back, that the energy in this transformation district will be high and that we'll get the kinds of partnerships that enable really transformative change. Dr. Elizabeth Ticeberg, Executive Director, Value Institute for Health and Care. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Race to Value podcast. It has truly been an honor. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to talk with you.
Dr. Ticeberg, how can our listeners find out more about the great work that you're doing at the Value Institute for Health and Care? Thanks. We would love to hear from your listeners. We would love to get them involved. We are building a community of people who want to transform healthcare and are doing it. And that being the hub of that community is really the essence of what our work is all about. Our website is Value Institute, which is all one word, .utexas.edu. Our contact is just, again, Value Institute, all one word, at Delmed, D-E-L-L-M-E-D, .utexas.edu. We welcome your listeners to reach out. We would love to connect. Well, keep up the great work, Dr. Ticeberg, and thank you again for joining us today. Thank you. Do you guys really understand this stuff? <laughs>